what makes humans so special? You know, what's the secret of our success? We have the most expressive faces in the whole animal kingdom. Uh, we have the unique ability to blush. You know, we involuntarily give away our feelings. So, so we're evolved to trust each other. Yeah. And even though we're individually not that special, collectively, we're incredibly, incredibly smart. And I think that doesn't necessarily mean that we're naturally good because people can also do horrible things, you know? when they're working together. And there's also a real dark side to our friendliness, you know, our groupishness, tribal behavior. I, I will say if I wanted to get someone to adopt very violent behaviors, I would put them side by side, like make it so that you're you're like protecting each other. I would put a mask or a visor on you, make it so mm -hmm. that you, you actually aren't making like eye contact or can't exactly. be seen. Exactly. It did make me reflect on what the United States is experiencing mm -hmm. right now with yeah. very uh, violent behavior on the parts of certain police officers caught on mm -hmm. tape in response to the protesters. Yes, absolutely. And it's so much the opposite of what the police should be. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the brilliant, the philosophical, and I say that with, with all honesty because he's literally a philosopher, uh, an intellectual mentor of mine, Rutger Bregman. Rutger, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Uh, I look, I was looking so much, I was looking forward to this so much. You know, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> huge fan of yours. So Rutger uh, and I first met, though Rutger doesn't remember this very well, but when he gave his TED talk about <laughs> poverty and universal basic income in Vancouver, I was in the hmm. crowd. Uh, you know, watching and thinking like, wow, this guy's amazing. Um, and then I, I quoted you all the time from then on that poverty is not a lack of character, it's a lack of cash. Uh, and referenced that talk, sent it to as many people as I could. Hmm. And then, of course, your book, Utopia for Realists, also very impactful. Tons of people read it and loved it. And now you have a new book out, Humankind, that I think is just out now. And the subtitle is A Hopeful History. Go ahead and uh, tell us about what led you to write this book. So the reason I wrote the book is that in the past, say, 15 to 20 years, there's been this silent revolution in science. You know, So many scientists from so many different disciplines think about sociologists and psychologists and anthropologists and archeologists have been moving from a quite cynical view of who we are as a species to a more hopeful view of you know, what we are and what we can be if we actually believe uh, and if we assume the best in each and every one. Um, so I wanted to connect the dots and show that there was something bigger going on. Um, and on the other hand, there was something else as well. I started to notice actually while promoting my previous book, Utopia for Realists, and as you know, you know the central idea in that book is universal basic income. Um, I had collected a lot of evidence that this actually works. You know, so many experiments ever since the 1970s in the US, in Canada, and many other places as well that show that universal basic income is like venture capital for the people, healthcare costs go down, crime goes down, kids do better in school, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's so much evidence that it works really well. So I went on a book tour and I talked to, I don't know, thousands of people about the idea. And again and again and again, after 30 or after 40 minutes, I find myself discussing not just um, sort of the scientific evidence, but also 
human nature, because that is sort of the most common objection uh, people have. So, against so wait, UBI. Right here, so people people would say to you, but people will do terrible things with his money because exactly. people are uh, lazy and yeah. um, selfish, self indulgent, and generally immoral uh, beings. Is that that a summary? Yeah, that's what I heard again and again, that people said, oh, this may work on a local scale, or maybe it worked in Canada, or maybe in this place in Europe, but we don't believe it's going to happen on a large scale, and certainly not in the US, because human nature, people are just selfish, people are just, I don't know, lazy, they're going to waste the money on drugs or alcohol, etc. So then I realized that I actually had to dig a little bit deeper, and I discovered that this view of human nature, this cynical view of human nature, is so deeply embedded in our culture. You know, it goes back all it the is. way to That's the ancient true. Greeks, and you find it with the Christian church fathers, you know, the notion that we're all sinners. Uh, you find it with the Enlightenment philosophers uh, or the founding fathers. John Adams, you know, once wrote an essay with the title, All Men Would Be Tyrants If They Could. And I think that this idea that people are just selfish had, has also been at the heart of sort of the capitalist model for decades, you know, that we're just homo economicus, that we're just basically selfish beings. And I think that we're has all produced rational the, utility maximizers, right, Rutger? We're, yeah. we're all just uh, counting our utiles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying yeah. To, yeah trying that's to the stack theory. them as yeah. high as we can. But I mean, it's not a it's not a harmless idea because sort of your theory of human nature tends to produce the kind of people that it presupposes. So there's one economist, uh, Robert Frank, who did these studies with his students where he actually discovered that if you, you know, you do a small test where you sort of uh, try to find out how generous people are. And turns out that actually as people progress in their study, you know, as they study economics, they become more selfish. They start, you know, behaving like homo economicus. It's like we teach it to them. Um, so ideas well, it, are never it, merely just well, ideas. Well, it, it's well established um, and you reference these studies in the book that what you expect people to do, you get more of. Like yeah. if you have high expectations for a kid and tell them, oh, you're, you're great, you're smart, like you'll, mm -hmm. you'll do well, then their performance actually changes. And obviously the opposite is true too. If you say, hey, you're bad at this, uh, you're terrible, yeah. then their performance declines. Yeah. And it sounds like that's true for our decision making too. Like if we're all told, hey, you're just going to be out for yourself and maximize your own well-being, then you look around and say, okay, I guess that's the way we do things here. Um, but that that actually isn't consonant with our nature, really, yeah. is, is what you argue very, very uh, compellingly. Yeah, exactly. And the same is true for Social Security. If you has, have a system where you ask people to prove over and over again that they're sick enough, that they're pr depressed enough, that they're really a hopeless case and they'll never get anything done in their life, uh, and you give them a little bit of support, say food stamps, for example, which is another, you know, again, it's all about distrust. We don't trust you to actually make your own decisions. Um, yeah, what are you going to get? Obviously, you're going to make people depressed and dependent. You know, it's a system that produces dependency. And this is why I was so enthusiastic about uh, UBI when I first, you know, read about it in 2013, 2014. Um, because it's all about trusting other people, you know, and this can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you actually trust people to make the right decisions, then you'll discover that the real experts on the poor's lives uh, are the poor themselves, right? They know what they need. Um, but you I really got to gotta make the shift in, in, in thinking about how, you know, uh, how you look at human nature. 
I want to verify for you two things that you experienced, Rutger. Number mm -hmm. one, when I was on the trail arguing for universal basic income, people also uh, objected based upon a uh, point of view of human nature as very base, selfish, mm -hmm. uh, lazy, and negative. Um, so it wasn't just you. And number two, hmm. when I was campaigning around the country, I met so many people who felt diminished by our uh, dehumanizing system of uh, welfare benefits and food mm -hmm. stamps. And the, the worst of them must have been disability, um, where if, if you are on disability, you literally have to prove that you're unable mm -hmm. to work periodically in order to continue to get benefits. And there was one woman who told me uh, about how she wanted to volunteer in her mm -hmm. community but she was scared to do so because if they saw that she could volunteer, then they might take her disability benefits away. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there, there were stories like that over and over again where our systems uh, end up reinforcing a perception of someone in their own minds also as not being able to do the things they want to do. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's tragic to me. Like I we're... we're yeah. And, and if you present the vast majority of human beings with this viewpoint on themselves, it's like, hey, number one, you're a liar and a cheat. Uh, <laughs> number two, you actually have like a real problem. Like mm -hmm. most people will choose number two. It's like, I actually do have like, uh, you know, uh, this genuine disability, either physical or emotional mm -hmm. or uh, mental or uh, whatever it is. Uh, you know, like most people will find themselves in that bucket and not the, I'm actually totally bullshitting and I'm perfectly fine and I just want that that set of benefits. Like that's mm -hmm. just not the way humans uh, shape their reality. No, no. Humans are meaning-seeking creatures. You know, we want to contribute. We want to be someone in society, right? No one sort of, or there are very few people who choose to live a life doing nothing, sitting on the couch, you know, watching Netflix all day because that makes people depressed, right? And obviously we've been very good at, at sort of keeping people dependent, you know, with these kind of very paternalistic systems of social security. Now, that doesn't mean that we should do away completely with social security because, you know, poverty yes. is, 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 a, is one of the biggest injustices there is in the world. We just should trust people and should build this floor in the whole income distribution. And that is true for the US and it's also true for Europe because, you know, what you've just been describing, I see this literally the same thing in the Netherlands where maybe our you know, our welfare state is a little bit stronger, right? We have universal health care. Um, but then, uh, I mean, you have cases where people literally, uh, uh, you know, were fined because they were doing volunteers work while they were on benefits as well, right? Because, oh, no, you can't really do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's really this paternalistic system that is all about distrusting other people. And I think we should completely turn that around. I couldn't agree more. One argument that I hear sometimes here in America uh, is that this model would work in Europe because uh, your societies are more homogeneous, mm -hmm. uh, or at least that's the perception. Yeah. Uh, and they look at the US and say, you know, there, there are um, too many different types of people here, which mm -hmm. I, I sense is generally like a, they're, they're talking about race, really, when they're talking about this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, th so this is certainly one thing that has come up. What's your perspective on uh, Europe versus the U.S. in that regard? I'm really, really skeptical of that argument that UBI is not going to work too, in obviously. the U.S. Because, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, I think that the U.S. has, you know, is 
It might be the first country that will implement this policy. It seems to me like a very, very American idea. And people for forget about this, but it was actually Richard Nixon, you know, at the beginning of the 70s, who almost implemented a modest basic income. You know, it almost happened. And uh, at the end of the 60s, you know, everyone from the left to the right, Republicans, Democrats, they all thought that this was the sensible way forward. You know, the perfect marriage between left-wing and right-wing thinking, right? The left gets the eradication of poverty and a bit of redistribution here to reduce inequality. And the right gets you know, freedom, because that's what it's all about. The freedom to make your own choices, right? To have a little bit of your own venture capital so that you can start uh, a new company, move to a different job, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that it's, um, it's a very, very American idea, or it's, uh, it's, it's a way that America likes to see itself, right? Um, well, so, well, Rutger, uh, the, it's one the reason Europe why has, we has ended a problem, up... right? Europe has, I think, a stronger tradition of paternalism, you know, stronger tradition of social democracy, where often those at the top say, you know, we want to help the poor, but we know what's best for them, right? We, we're going to help them, right, to make the right decisions. And that's really holding us back. Well, it's, it's one reason we ended up naming uh, the universal basic income um, uh, that we fought for, the freedom dividend. Yes. Where it was very American sounding and we focus group tested a bunch of different names uh universal basic income income social security for all uh prosperity dividend opportunity dividend mm -hmm. freedom dividend and freedom dividend tested better than anything else <laughs> that, that, hmm. that, that we tried yeah. because it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant you know i've changed my mind on this i, I you know in utopia for realists i still talk about basic income but dividend is really the right word because income assumes that you, you know, you have to work for it. But, a you know, it's a dividend because it's a right. Just because you exist, because you're a citizen of your country, because you have a heartbeat, because you have the right passport, that is enough. And why can we afford this? Well, simply because we're already so rich, right? Because our forefathers worked so hard and created all these innovations, all these amazing technologies. We've got all the rent that comes from the land. We've got the rent from, you know, all the buildings that we've built together, etc., etc. There's so much... Uh, shared capital and um, yeah everyone deserves a share of that everyone deserves a dividend from that so you basically uh, have a platform to stand on and um, I couldn't yeah, it's, agree it's more a, it's was, a much better concept I was telling people this is already your money uh, and one of the arguments I was making was that your data is getting sold and resold for billions of dollars exactly. a year and you're not seeing a dime of that you're uh, generating value and our, and our society now has the wealth to be able to do this. Yeah, and in the yeah. absence of making this kind of move, we're going to wind up uh, in the most extreme winner-take-all economy in the history of the world, which we are already seeing. Yeah. Uh, in, in your book, you go through some examples. So I, I can almost see your wheels turning when you were uh, preparing the book because <laughs> you were trying to figure out, okay, why is it that we all think that we're terrible? <laughs> like, like, what are like the great pillars of Western thought or mm -hmm. experiments that have established for us all that if you leave a bunch of people alone, we're going to turn on each other, mm -hmm. uh, Lord of the Flies style. And you yeah. obviously <laughs> use Lord of the Flies as, yeah. as one example, yeah. but it was fascinating for you to try and go through and uh, inspect and re-examine each of the major reasons why we've all taken for granted that human beings are shitty, uh, terrible creatures if you <laughs> leave us alone. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if you write a book like this, you know that you're going to get the response. But yes, but what about this? 
what about that? What about, right? Uh, that's, that's the response you get all the time. So I knew that it had to be a, a fairly big book. And indeed, I decided to start with Lord of the Flies, you know, one of the most famous novels of the 20th century. Uh, you know, it's about a group of kids that end up on an island, an uninhabited island after an airplane crash. And they have to, you know, set, set up some kind of society uh, to survive. And uh, it doesn't really work. Turns out that civilization is only a very thin veneer. And if you leave this, these kids alone, even though they went to a really good British boarding school, you know, they were very well behaved. Uh, but, you know, they, they turn into savages. At least that's what happens in the novel uh, written by William Golding. It was published in the 50s and it became, you know, a huge bestseller. Millions and millions of kids had we to read it in school. We all used Lord of the Flies as a thing. It's like, oh, he's going to go Lord of the Flies. Like, it's, it's like a yeah, shorthand. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you have to read it in school or not? Yes, yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. I did. Well, I, I read it when I was 16 or 17 or something like that. And I, I still remember, you know, the, the effect it had on me. You know, I felt like, oh, well, huh, that's depressing. But maybe this is uh, more realistic as well. No more Harry Potter for me. Um, but then for this book, I decided to to see and, and find out whether there's ever been a real life Lord of the Flies case, right? Has it ever happened in all of world history that real kids shipwrecked on a real island? And yeah, what would have happened? So yeah, after a couple of months of research, I, I, I did find uh, a case uh, actually um, in 1965 in Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean. There were six kids who were bored of their boring school and they hated the school meals. So what they decided to do is to... Uh, steal a boat and get away. Now, in the first night, they ended up in a storm. They drifted for eight days, ended up on this uninhabited island and survived for 15 months. And the- th How long? The 15, 15 months? months. Yeah, 15 months. So then the, the crazy thing is that if you, if you look at the real Lord of the Flies, like this real story, in almost every single way, it's the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. It's a story of friendship, of hope, and of resilience. And actually, these these guys are still friends today. And uh, I, yeah, I managed well, to talk sure. to them. Well, sure. I mean, you, and, you have a you, hopefully you're bonded for life by the fact you got shipwrecked together, and you didn't yeah. eat each other. So now you're now you're each other's like, uh, you know, Christmas list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, remember exactly. that time <laughs> yeah. when we built like the the lean to together? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, I mean, obviously, this is not a scientific experiment right i know that uh, it's just one story but i think that if millions of kids have to read about the fictional lord of the flies then they deserve to know about this story as well and i think it's also important because maybe you experienced this as well uh, while you were touring uh, is that people are just more moved by stories than by scientific data etc i mean data helps i love math <laughs> uh, but uh in the end, we human beings, we are the stories that we tell ourselves, right? And, and for centuries, we've been telling I, I ourselves quite I concluded the same thing stories. after months on the campaign trail, Rutger, is that I led off talking about data and I was like, and it's pretty self-explanatory. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that, that you, you needed to shift towards uh, stories and people and emotional mm -hmm. uh, appeals and different modes of communication as quickly as possible. I figured it out. Mm. It took me months, but mm. you're right. Mm. Just agree. Well, with but you. probably you need both, right? I think 
what I try to do in this book is to have powerful stories, but then also, you know, the research where I try to zoom out, right? I try to rely as much as possible on meta-analyses, you know, where researchers take a whole bunch of studies, put them together and to see what a bit, what the bigger picture is. Because I mean, in science so often, the problem is obviously that, especially in psychology, so many, so much research doesn't replicate. You know, they have one exciting study and it, you know, gets to the front page of nature or of science, you know, one of the big journals. Uh, but then two years later you hear, well, it uh, didn't really replicate. Uh, so I wanted to write a book that people could still read 10 years from now. And then you have to take a very different approach. Also, the real life Lord of the Flies was fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. One other story I found fascinating or this uh, phenomenon was that when you looked closely at um, soldiers in different military uh, conflicts when mm-hmm. they were using muskets, a majority of them apparently did not fire at the enemy. Uh, yeah. They fired above them they pretended to reload over and over again mm-hmm. uh that you know they they essentially tried to do anything they could to look okay without firing on each other and i found that to be absolutely fascinating yeah yeah me too it was a big surprise for me i didn't know that before but it turns out that actually we've been brainwashed a little bit by hollywood and netflix and you know we've been watching too many series like like Game of Thrones, which is which give us the impression that violence is very difficult. Now, obviously, we human beings, we can be really nasty, right? On the one hand, I think we've evolved to be friendly, and there's a lot of evidence for that, that actually for millennia was the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. But we're also clearly capable of you know a lot of nasty things and cruel things. You could even argue that we're the cruelest species in the animal kingdom, right? We engage in wars and ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, but then we do not find that easy. So indeed, if you look at the history of warfare, what you find is there are a lot of examples of soldiers, you know, just average soldiers who have been drafted and who can't really fire their guns. Um, there's one very famous study done by an American uh, historian that's also a bit controversial. Uh, so let me tell a bit more about that. Uh, his name is SLA Marshall, and he found out, uh, or at least he estimated that only around 15 to 25% of soldiers, American soldiers during the Second World War actually fired their guns, right? Uh, and since then, there's been a lot of follow-up research that indeed confirmed this, that... Um, yeah, it's just it's just it's just difficult. You have to be conditioned first and brainwashed a little bit first before you actually manage to pull the trigger. We're not born to kill. We're really not. Uh, and actually, if soldiers do manage to kill in wars, we saw this a lot um, after the war in Vietnam. They come back and they're traumatized, right? They they have PTSD, which suggests to me that maybe you know we're not born to do this. We're obviously capable of it. But, you know, we don't get a great psychological reward most of the time. Actually, most of the time, we actually damage something or kill something in, in, in ourselves when we kill someone else. One thing that seems to, to be universally true is that when soldiers did uh, take certain actions, uh, you know, shooting, killing others, mm-hmm. um, taking on dangers to themselves, it often was because of a degree of camaraderie or comradeship Mm. and they Mm. they wanted to protect the people around them. They didn't want to let someone else down. Um, It it did make me reflect on what the United States is experiencing Mm. right now with the George Floyd killing and then the protests afterwards. And you are seeing very uh, violent behavior on the parts 
of um, certain police officers caught on mm-hmm. tape um, in response to the protesters mm-hmm. uh, where there was the 75-year-old man in Buffalo who got yeah. shoved down and cracked his skull and, yeah. and I believe he's still hospitalized. Um, yeah. There are other shots of uh, police officers just like batoning students or shooting students with rubber bullets. Uh, and one of the things that, because it was reading Humankind uh, and then looking around at what's going on uh, around the world, you look around and say, okay, if we're basically good and uh, not really wired to naturally turn on each other in these ways, mm-hmm. um, yet we're seeing some examples that, that very much uh, reflect the opposite. And I, I will say, if I wanted to get someone to adopt very uh, violent behaviors, a few things I would do is uh, I would um, train them. And like mm-hmm. you know, you talk about trying to brainwash um, soldiers in, in various ways. Um, I would put them side by side, like make it so that you're, you're like protecting each other um, I would put a like a mask or a visor on you, make it so mm-hmm. that you you actually like aren't making like eye contact or can't be exactly. seen exactly. Um, by yeah. the people that you're inflicting violence on. Um, I'd have like a culture around um, uh, around that, like where where you, you you do get a sense that some of these, um, yeah, like some some of these police departments have a very, very strong culture that reflects uh, almost like a military unit. Yes, absolutely. And it's so much the opposite of what the police should be. I think uh, a real police police officer should be a kind of social worker, right? It's really important that you know everyone in your neighborhood, uh, you know, that you know the grandmothers and the grandfathers and the aunts and the uncles. That People just basically trust you. So they can be your ally in fighting crime, right? And actually solving real serious crime. And this is what we call community policing. And I think that here, actually, the US has to learn something from a couple of European countries. You know, in in the London, for example, like 90% of police officers don't wear guns because the philosophy is that if you show up with guns and with riot gear, you know, what kind of message is that you're sending? If you show up at a peaceful protest, you know, in riot gear, what, you know, what do you want? Now, uh, if you then look at Norway, uh, Norway is really uh, the, gold, the gold standard here. You know, if you look at the whole criminal justice system. Uh, also, if you look at the prisons, actually, which are the complete opposite of how they've organized everything in the US. So in the US, you have these systems where, uh, you know, the taxpayer is basically paying for institutions where people come in as citizens and they come out as criminals, right? It's like universities for crime. That's what prisons often are. Uh, in Norway, they've got but the complete It's even opposite. worse, Rutger, and, and we need to get rid of this in the US, but it's even worse if you have for-profit prisons because yeah. they literally have a yeah, financial yeah, 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 incentive yeah. around yeah. recidivism yeah. and uh, and lower incentives to try and uh, yeah. rehabilitate people It's bizarre, people isn't it? It's so sinister. Uh, anyway, what, what they have in, the, in, in Norway is the opposite. Um, and it's very strange, actually, if you look at it, uh, because it goes completely in the other direction. Here you have these places where the inmates have the freedom to socialize with the guards. Uh, they um, can make music, you know, they they even have their own music studio and their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. <laughs> I thought that was particularly hilarious. Um, but then you look at the results, and indeed, Norway has the lowest recidivism rate in the whole world. You know, the lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And... Then you look at the financial side of the whole thing, and it turns out, just like with UBI, it actually saves money. 
because you spend less on healthcare and you create these law-abiding tax-paying citizens. The chance that someone will find a job in Norway after he or she has gone to prison goes up with 40%, 40%. You know, in the US it goes down by I don't know how much. Um, so in the US you have these really expensive in the US institutions it goes down by a lot. that cost money. In Norway, you have these institutions that, you know, also cost quite a bit of money, but actually get you a return on investment, you know, that is twice as large as the, as the initial investment. And I think that's exactly the same thing with, with UBI. You know, UBI is also all about investing in people so that they'll actually become creative and they'll start a, a company and, you know, find a job and they, you know, start paying taxes, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about getting a return on your investment. Um, so I think there, uh, in the whole sort of defund the police debate, I think uh, that we can learn something from these uh, um, Scandinavian countries. There's a lot to learn. And one of the uh, quotes um, uh, I repeated on the trail was from a corrections officer in New Hampshire. And mm -hmm. he said to me, we should pay people to stay out of jail because we spend so much when they're in mm -hmm. jail. Like he yeah. saw all of the waste and expense that went into our Department of Corrections and it was not rehabilitating people, uh, you know, and in the States, if you come out of jail, it's very hard to find a job on multiple levels. But yeah. one reason is that employers will uh, not hire you, that, that yeah. you know, there are laws around your disclosing prior convictions and criminal record and an employer would just uh, rather not take a chance. Yeah. And then just think about the huge waste of talent here. Just to think about how many Einsteins we lost to mass incarceration. Just think about and how I, many I mean, Einsteins we lost to poverty. You know, it's just, yeah. It's you you know what? I mean, I agree with you, Rucker, but one of the things I, I always try and argue too is like, you know, we don't need them to be Einsteins. You know, no, I, mean? I agree. I agree. I agree. Yeah. No, garbage collector is pretty fantastic as well. Uh, actually, uh, this is one of the points that I tried to make in my, my previous book, Utopia Freelist, and in this book as well, is that we need to revalue or rethink what the really important work is, right? We very often focus on the innovators, on the people who make something new, but the, you know, the maintainers are, are also very important, or maybe even more important. You know, there's this example that the anthropologist David Graeber always gives. If you know, if you have like a cup, you, you produce it once a cup, but you wash it a thousand times. Right. So what's more important, the maintenance or the production? Well, certainly during this pandemic, we've seen just how vital uh, essential workers are and much more important than what people think of as like, oh, yeah. the, the high order intellectual work. I mean, like no one gives a shit about, uh, you know, about my thoughts and feelings if you can't get food, if you can't yes. get shelter, if you don't have someone picking up the garbage, it's like piling up, um, yes. you know, and everything else. Yes. Um, so I agree with you that hopefully we can rebalance that, uh, that sense of what work is valuable. Um, but the, this the, is, Andrew, this is, I think, the most important aspect actually of UBI is that you'll give a huge amount of additional bargaining power to the people who actually do the essential work because they can always fall back on their basic income. I got this, get this question a lot, is that people say, Rutger, but what, you know, who's gonna clean my house if people have a basic income? You know, they won't wanna do that anymore. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the point. You gotta pay a proper salary for, for people who do really important work, right? They'll, they'll get more bargaining power, so their wages will have to go up. <laughs> and that's exactly, you know, that's the point. And if you can't afford that, well, then maybe clean your house yourself, right? So that you'll learn, you know, what's what's so important to you. 
Um, it's uh, it's I, such yeah, I, a re- redistribution not only of income but also of respect that we actually understand what what's what's so important. Uh, in the yeah, it, it values people intrinsically, and one of the the. Uh, arguments I make is like, look, we have to be able to say to our kids, your country loves you, your country values you, and your country will invest in you. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't agree with you more that even with this floor, people would be out there uh, working as hard as ever uh, on all sorts of things, better things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd recognize mm-hmm. the kind of work that people are actually doing um, yeah. that they want to do. And it would make it impossible or much, much harder to exploit people the way that people are being exploited right now. Yeah. Uh, where you have people who are getting paid subsistence wages or less in the United States. Uh, and so if you look at some of these jobs, um, we'd probably be investing in automating many of them mm-hmm. uh, if, they're, if they're just so punishing or unpleasant that people don't want to do them. And yeah. that is better. Like that's an upgrade. Yeah. Yeah, um, you yeah. know, it's like when, when people look at, and this is not uh, like, I, you know, I worked in at a, a fast food diner myself, so, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's good work, but if people are like, oh, look at these fast food jobs, it's like, oh, we should try and like preserve these jobs. And it's like, really? Like what, what is like the purpose of a job here? <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. if, if we can make that McDonald's function with fewer people, um, maybe that's a positive thing. Like, yeah. we, you know, we don't necessarily need to be trying to safeguard these opportunities if they're opportunities that people genuinely would not want to do if they felt like they had some meaningful choice. Yes, I agree. And this is what I learned from traveling around a little bit, is that on the one hand, I agree with you that, you know, automation is, a you know, something very worrying and we should be talking about it way more. But then on the other hand, we also should not underestimate our culture's extraordinary ability to come up with new jobs that don't really need to exist, right? Or what, what some people call bullshit jobs or socially meaningless jobs. And so I um, I made a trip to Japan. Rucker Bregman, pro-bullshit jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm against bullshit jobs. No, but I mean, um, t- two years ago, I visited Japan. And, you know, what's one of the striking things you see if you just walk around in a city like Tokyo, you see so many jobs that don't need to exist way more even than in the US and, and especially more than in Europe. You know, there's rope works going on, for example, and there are like seven, eight people standing next to it all pointing you the way where you have to pause, like go to the left, to the right, where it's already perfectly clear, you know, in which direction you have to go, but still they invent these jobs. And then I realized that if you have a society where, you know, we say to people, your whole dignity and, you know, the way we're going to value you as a person, it's totally dependent on you know, your job and you really need a job. Otherwise, we're going to think you're, you know, we're not going to value you. Yeah, then obviously the system is going to create a huge amount of jobs that don't really need to exist, uh, you know, that, you know, robots could do uh, because that's just sort of the cultural effect of it. So that's why I, I started to believe that we need to take a step further and actually have this deeper debate about what role work actually plays in our society, right? And what is real work? Yeah, you know, and and I I, uh, all the time talk about my wife, Evelyn, and how she's at home with our two boys, Mm -hmm. one of whom is autistic. And what does the market value her work at? Yeah, exactly. Does it even consider it work or a job? What about the millions of stay-at-home parents uh, and single moms around the United States? Do you have a family yourself, Rutger? I actually don't know this about you. Well, I'm married, but I don't have kids. I'm a young man. <laughs> are you a newlywed? Is that recent? Are congratulations in order? No, that's uh, four years ago. <laughs> and we've been together for 10 years. So, uh, 
Yeah. Oh, well, well, congrats. But yeah, like the, there are different forms of work that right now we don't recognize as a quote unquote uh, job mm-hmm. um, that to me uh, really are some of the most important things that we do. You yeah. know, like if you're taking care of your ailing relative, mm-hmm. uh, that's exhausting and vital uh, and the, the sort of thing that people struggle with mm-hmm. uh, it, even if they don't have other obligations at that time and so mm-hmm. you know like trying to respect what makes us human beings uh, to me is one of the most important facets of universal basic income yeah yeah I agree This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. (laughs) That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So look, I have a question for you, Andrew. Um... What, what I've been thinking about quite a lot is how long is, is this shift going to take, right? How long is it going to take to really push these new ideas forward? If we zoom out a little bit, then you actually see that in the 60s, you know, in America, people were talking about uh, UBI, guaranteed basic income, and it was almost implemented. What was a huge surprise for me is that actually the US was the first country to experiment with these kind of radical prisons that they now have in Norway, right? It's not, originally, it's not a Norwegian idea. It's actually an originally an American idea. But, and the government I, I, of the United States of America sent out uh, just money to, to thousands of Americans around the country just to yeah. see what would happen. I mean, today it would seem unfathomable, unfathomable that the U.S. government would do that, but we did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I am hopeful about sort of the shift we've seen, I think, in the past five, six years, whether you think about, you know, climate change. I think people take that much more seriously. Uh Think about inequality. There's a lot more attention for that right now, and and it's also actually striking if you look at you know the support for these kind of ideas. The vast majority of Americans support higher taxes on the rich, a Green New Deal. Uh, As an observer, Rutger, what do you uh, think happened in the United States of America that we came this close to having a basic income in the '60s, and then it just left the radar entirely? Um, maybe until recently, maybe like I, I helped drag it back into the mm-hmm. light. But what the heck happened over those intervening 50 mm-hmm. years that mm-hmm. was this close to passage and was front and center um, mm-hmm. became so obscured and ignored? Mm-hmm. So 
there are a couple of like really crazy coincidences here is that for example uh the republicans became convinced that basic income is a terrible thing for marriage right because they saw this spike in divorce rates in one of the experiments in an experiment in seattle turns out that later that it was actually a statistical mistake that had been made so there was no rise in divorce rates at all uh, some of these crazy coincidences matter but it's also sort of we, the, we should actually the, stop there for a second rutger because uh-huh. this seems like a very proto uh or a pro-feminist tack, which is, hey, if people all have yeah. enough money, yeah. then maybe people won't stay in marriages that, uh, that yeah, they're not exactly, excited yeah. about. Now we would say that's actually a great idea, you know? Yes, we want a higher divorce rate when people get a basic income because that's probably a, mari- a sign that people were stuck in terrible marriages. But, you know, it probably was not the case in this Seattle experiment. I know that there's, there's been a basic income experiment in India where they did see a rise in divorce rates. Um, but there's also obviously been this huge ideological shift since the 60s and the 70s. And um, yeah, there, was, there were really these guys, I've got one chapter in my previous book about that, you know, think about the, the economist Milton Friedman, uh, Friedrich von Hayek, who in the 50s were really in the minority. They were sort of the capitalist resistant fighters. Uh, and they really believed in basically privatizing everything. Um, but then they started developing their ideas and their institutions, and they took over, I think, in the 70s and the 80s. They used the crisis, and then Reagan and Thatcher you know, to, uh, used their ideas, and they changed the world. So I, I, I think, you know, as a historian, I think that real change takes like a generation or something like that. And everything depends, as Milton Friedman himself said, on the ideas that are lying around at a moment of crisis. Um, so that's, I think, why it was so important, you know, that people like you already started, you know, years ago with building this movement for UBI, um, because it just takes time, you know, it just takes time. And there will be a moment um, when suddenly ideas that used to be dismissed as unrealistic and unreasonable and crazy can suddenly move into the mainstream and make the march through the institutions, right? But they have to be on the agenda first. Uh, and that takes a lot of hard work and patience. Um, but yeah, that's that's what you see if you zoom out. You, you've had a hand in history, Rutger, I guarantee you. <laughs> I don't because, know about that. <laughs> no, you, you 100% have, because even your TED Talk uh, ended up impacting many people that I ran across, and me, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I championed this, and um, you're seeing now millions of Americans come our way, where now the vast majority of Americans support emergency cash relief Hmm. uh, to help address this pandemic. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, And one of the arguments I've made, because I completely agree with you that Milton Friedman and the cult of shareholder value and all that stuff Mm -hmm. really like overtook a lot of American thought, uh, is that somehow we have been brainwashed over the last 50 years to think that somehow we exist to serve the economy mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that, yeah. that we're all like inputs into this machine. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at someone like Martin Luther King, he supported basic income uh, and was fighting for it when he was killed. And we now have a national yeah. holiday around his birthday uh, which I don't know if you've spent enough time in the States to know this is how it goes, but like every year his birthday comes and it's a holiday and all the kids get mm-hmm. school off. And then there are these snippets of him speaking, generally the I have a dream speech mm-hmm. or that there'll be just this uh, th- this set of messages around racial equality. Yeah, and, yeah. And I've been arguing, it's like, why don't they play his, like, everyone should get a guaranteed income speech. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, exactly, like play that yeah. speech. They, they don't um, want you to the, hear that. <laughs> 
Yeah. No, they, they don't. Uh, and uh, the, the last 50 years have really been a, a complete victory for this market-based thinking. Uh, and the question is, how does the pendulum swing the other direction? Yeah. I'm very well, optimistic that, that the pendulum is swinging the other direction very quickly because yeah. of the realities that we're, we're faced with, particularly yeah. in the U.S. now. I don't know how the situation is uh, in the Netherlands, but we're facing mm. Depression-era levels of unemployment. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems to me that in the U.S., there's often this, what I think is a very stupid debate about capitalism versus socialism or the market versus the government as if that is sort of the op the opposition is there you have this whole generation of thinkers intellectuals and politicians that you know grew up during the cold war and this is sort of the black and white view they have when they think about e the economy and politics uh and i think that's nonsense and that's also why i like your approach of sort of uh yeah humanity first and human-centered capitalism right um if you look at uh, you know, the model that we have in other countries or uh, in the US and the UK in the 60s, you had much higher taxes on the rich and you had stronger economic growth and stronger innovation as well. So maybe these things can be true at the same time. Uh, if you have something like uh, Medicare for all, you know, universal healthcare, that's actually more efficient. You know, it helps to make capitalism work better. You know, it's cheaper yes. and, it, and it delivers better results. And you have it in pretty much every developed country except the US. And even conservatives in Canada and the UK, they love it. They absolutely love it, right? Conservatives would never dream of, you know, going against the NHS in the UK. Actually, they use the NHS to sort of bash the European Union and say, okay, we're going to get out of the EU and then give more money to the NHS, right? That's what the populists did in the UK. So um, I, I never like this this discussion that, that, that you so often have about capitalism it, it versus is, socialism in the US. I think it's totally stupid. It is so dumb uh, and destructive because you wind up in this ridiculous, incoherent conversation. Uh, I tried to express this point of view during one of the debates and universal health care is so good for the economy on so many levels, mm -hmm. not just because you'd end up rationalizing the costs, but how mm -hmm. many people in the United States, you don't know this, but I do. How many people in the United States have thought about starting a business or doing something independent and then frozen their tracks because they didn't know what they were going to do about their health care. Well, I guarantee me. you millions huh. because in America, like your health care coverage is tied to your job. And so you're like, well, can't do anything uh, to jeopardize that. Yeah. And they, they even have a term for it. It's called job lock. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a ton of job lock in the United States. It's stifling entrepreneurship and risk taking and job switching. Like if you were to get health care off of uh this employment mm -hmm. basis, it would be this enormous economic catalyst in the US. It's just good mm -hmm. for business uh, and creativity and entrepreneurship and humanity. Yeah. And it's the right thing to do. And our system is uh, is a complete mess on multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so one of the, the big questions is how the US is going to end up making that transition. Uh, yeah. the, the US has a lot of legacy structures that are going to be very difficult to reform. Yeah. There's one thing actually where the US has been pretty great in terms of having a, an ambitious and uh, robust uh, state, which is uh, when we talk about innovation. 
Now, the reason that the US has invested a lot in sort of radical and fundamental innovation, actually more than European countries, is because uh, they all also always call it uh, defense or the military, right? <laughs> so, so many of the fundamental innovations in the past couple of decades have come out of, of military research. Um, there's this wonderful economist, I think she's one of the great thinkers of our time right now, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, Italian economist, who has pointed out that, you know, every sliver of fundamental innovation in uh, the iPhone, you know, everything that makes it a smartphone instead of a stupid phone, has come out of uh, research, you know, done by researchers that were on the government payroll, you know, either, you know, funded by Europe big European grants or mostly by the US military. So touchscreen, you know, voice recognition system, battery, internet, mobile technology, you name it, everything that makes it a smartphone. Now, does that mean that we don't need Apple or, or other companies like that? Obviously, we need them, right? It's it's great if they use these innovations and make a great product out of that. But then let's at least uh, let them pay taxes, right? So that we can fund the new round of innovation uh, in green technology, for example. So I think this is a, sort of an example where it's it's become so perfectly clear that it's stupid to think in this opposition between the market and the state, right? They actually need each other. You know, the market needs sort of the bold venture capitalist that really can use a huge amount of money, you know, to, to put in fundamental research. And, and obviously there, there's gonna, a lot of, gonna be a lot of failures there as well, right? Just to say, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you know that. Um, Solyndra or something like that? Yeah, I mean, there are casualties, that happens. But people forget this, you know? Elon Musk, he, he received like 5 billion in US government funding. And, and, and we see him as the, as the model of Ultimate private entrepreneurship. Entrepreneur. He's like the real life Tony Stark, but uh, but he <laughs> he's very open about the fact. It's like yeah, Look, yeah, Tesla, and it's great. It's great. SpaceX. I mean, it's it's not. I'm saying that oh, Elon Musk is. Uh, it's not something we should blame him. We should applaud him for this, right? Is that he applaud had this him. idea? Agreed, because he's trying to solve yeah. the biggest problems. And if you're going to solve exactly. the biggest problems, yeah. the fact that the government supported you is. Uh, fantastic. It means something actually worked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But then the problem with with this is that we we remember Solyndra, right? When a government investment goes wrong, but we forget about you know the the fact that actually the U.S. government invested a huge amount of money in Elon Musk, right? And 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 in SpaceX and in Tesla and you name it. And the program that Solyndra is associated with, I believe, um, got uh, paid back fully anyway. Like it, it wasn't hmm. even a net loser. Hmm. Um, but well, but, that, but that, that just speaks to uh, the nature of our politics in the U.S., where it, it's become hmm. um, much more about scoring points and less about effective policy. Hmm. Uh, you know, the the concern that we have here in the states is that. D.C. is so far behind the curve and unable to refresh itself or update itself and that mm. our competitiveness is happening um, in spite of our government rather than being led by it in many, many mm. regards. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. I mean, that's one reason I ran for president um, is the modernization uh, of how we do things in the U.S., including basic income, which strikes me as like the, the next step mm. uh, of the way we Hmm. get resources into people's hands. Um, I mm -hmm. want to return to the book. And for those of you watching the video, it's like, this is what it looks like. This is just proof uh, <laughs> of uh, humankind, uh, hopeful history. Uh, so, so when you were doing this research, like it, it is very interesting to me about how, uh, how you almost had to like combat your own training where like we've all been trained so thoroughly that uh, people stink and, <laughs> and that, that if you put us in 
um, circumstances that are uncontrolled and like bad things will happen. Um, yeah. And then yeah, you were, and then you were, you were digging in trying to figure out, it's like, wait, why do we think that? Like, what are like the major touch points? Mm-hmm. You debunked some of them, you contextualized others, you introduced new stories. Uh, and one of the, the things that you took from it, which I thought was really interesting, was that there is like a very, very small subset of people for whom um, uh, violence and uh, bad behavior is not wholly unnatural. And unfortunately, a lot of those people wind up finding themselves in positions of authority mm-hmm. um, in our modern life. Uh, and th- this was one explanation on offer as to why certain uh atrocities have occurred or certain like mm-hmm. just you know like examples obviously of cruelty um and inhumanity um uh, if if you mm-hmm. uh, put it that way This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So, so where are you now, Rutger? Like, have you convinced yourself about the essential mm. goodness uh, of, of humanity? Um, mm-hmm. And I agree with you that I agree with you on uh, on so many levels. Just about everything you write and argue, I agree with. Um, so, some of the things that I think most everyone can agree on, it's like, look, um, expectations actually influence behavior. Mm-hmm. And if you go around telling people they're terrible then and utility maximizers, then they might actually act like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but if you tell them they're actually good people and care about their family members and neighbors and will do the right thing in, in most contexts, even if they don't have like a, you know, person behind them with a stick, like, like ready to punish them if they don't do the right thing, mm-hmm. um, you'll do the right thing most of the time. Like, I think that actually ends up improving behavior. Um, uh, for the vast, vast majority of, of humans. I think that having structures in place that imbue us with the sense of confidence that people believe in us and are investing in us and trust us to make our own decisions um, is fundamentally empowering in the right way to go and will end up producing the next level of human uh, progress and, and advancement. Mm-hmm. Uh now I do think that there, there, like people listening to this or watching this, are asking this very same question that I asked uh, myself, and I'm asking you now is like, like, do I really believe that people mm-hmm. are good uh, innately, and that some of the evils I see in the world mm-hmm. are a result of 
like a handful of bad actors uh, gaining control and mm-hmm. these cultures of like uh, reinforcement that enable people to do terrible things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't say that people are naturally good or not angels. We're clearly capable of a lot of nasty stuff, you know, jealousy, aggression, you name it. But we have evolved to work together and to connect with each other. You know, you can ask the question, what makes humans being so special? You know, what's the secret of our success? Why do we build pyramids and spaceships? And, you know, why have we conquered the globe? And why not the bonobos or the gorillas or the Neanderthals? Um, And what biologists now think is that it's actually our capacity of friendliness that's really our true superpower. Because, uh, you know, individually, we're not that smart. Uh, we're not that special. If you do an intelligence test and you let a human toddler of around two years old compete with a pig, then often the pig wins. So don't eat bacon because pigs are smart, right? But that's another book. Um, if you do uh, like a boxing match with a chimpanzee, you know, you're not going to have a nice experience. You know, <laughs> you're going to be smashed, basically. So we're not very strong. We're not that smart compared to other species. But we can just collaborate and work together on a on a on a scale that other animals just can't. Um, there's this saying from Isaac Newton, you know, the great physicist who once said that if he had seen further than others, it was by standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's wrong, actually. I think that if human beings have seen further than others, it's because they're standing on the shoulders of dwarfs. We're just a lot of dwarfs standing on top of each other. And that makes us so smart, right? There's, there's one really wonderful example from the anthropologist Joseph Henrik that I use in the book as well, where he says, well, imagine a planet uh, where there are two sort of tribes. The one tribe is called the, the copycats and the other tribe is called uh, the, the geniuses. Now, the geniuses are really smart. You know, they're Einsteins. They come up with brilliant inventions on their own. But the problem is, is that they're not very social. They're not very friendly. So if they invent something, they don't share it with, with their friends. Now, this the, sounds like me as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but then the copycats, they're, they're, they're not that smart. They're a little bit more like me. Um, but they do like to share, you know, what they read, what they know, what they find out, what they discover. Um, so very, when, when a copycat, you know, when there's this exceptional event that a copycat comes up with something new, then quickly everyone knows about it. Now, if you let these two tribes sort of compete uh, in history, what you'll actually discover is that uh, the copycats end up with way more innovations than the geniuses. Because geniuses, well, they, they, they invent a lot, but they just don't remember it. While um, what we have is cumulative culture. You know, we, we, we built languages, we built all the kinds of innovations, etc. And even though we're individually not that special, collectively, we're incredibly, incredibly smart. And I, again, by the way, this is a philosophical argument for UVI, yeah? for, for, a, for a freedom dividend, because it basically says, uh, look, our prosperity comes from the collective, right? It's because we're just so good at working together. And I think that doesn't necessarily mean that we're naturally good, because people can also do horrible things, you know? when they're working together. And there's also a real dark side to our friendliness, you know, our groupishness, our, 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 our uh, um, tribal behavior. Tribalism. Like, yeah, exactly. We do a lot of the most nasty things in the name of friendship and in the name of loyalty and in the name of comradeship. This is exactly what, yeah, the dark dynamic that you see in history and maybe now also in the US, you know, this extraordinary, um, you got this in-group, out-group behavior that, you know, just grows and grows and grows. And what you need then is actually to try and ignore your intuition and maybe uh, uh, 
zoom out a little bit, use your rationality and think, hey, wait a minute, those other people in those other group, they're, exa- you know, they're quite similar to me. You know, they're, they're also just human beings with the same, you know, intuitions and desires, etc. So you wouldn't call us the necessarily like the good um, humans, but you would call us the collaborative, the sharing, yeah, uh, the the groupish humans. Yes, yes. And and here it's also interesting that sometimes, if you want to do the right thing, the good thing, you actually have to go against your own friendliness, right? If you look at you know the heroes in our history, the people who really went against the status quo. They were not that friendly. They were often described as nasty and as difficult. Uh, I mean, we were talking about Martin Luther King. Nowadays, he's like this hero. He's like this saint. And, you know, you, have a, you, get, a, you get a free day in the US. Oh, we all love Martin Luther King. Actually, back then, he was very, very controversial. You know, a lot of white people hated him. He was a radical. Him. Yeah, people yes. hated him. Um, but that's what we forget, right? This is, people have a bad memory when it comes to these, to these kind of things. Um, so often, progress doesn't come from friendly people. You know, it often comes from unfriendly people who are willing to go against the status quo. Now, that doesn't mean everyone should be unfriendly, right? I think that in any movement, well, the, there the are two different people roles I to thought play. of when you raised that, in addition uh-huh. to Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. were Steve Jobs and Bernie Sanders. No offense, Bernie. Bernie's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but those were just yeah. two people that just popped into my mind as yeah. like folks that you don't think of as warm and cuddly, but they um, they moved us forward. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, you need other people as well, right? Any movement needs, has a whole variety of roles. You need people who are willing to be dragged away by the riot police, but then you also need people who are, you know, really good networkers and are able to build coalitions and actually bring people together again, right? And who are willing to make uncomfortable compromises to at least get something done. Um, so often we, we have this preference for a particular kind of activism we're like oh i love andrew yang but i don't like bernie sanders or i love greta thunberg but i hate extinction rebellion but what if all of us actually have a role to play right what if what if you we can- all have a role to play <laughs> yeah it, yeah it, it, it's kind of wonderful and magical rutger but you know on this journey like mm-hmm. i meet folks who are all just playing this very distinct remarkable role and we're all uh, different from each other, but mm-hmm. we're all pushing in the same general direction. I certainly feel that way about um, universal basic income. And I, I want to support your depiction of humanity uh, from all my time on the trail. The vast, vast majority of the people I met, and, and these were people all walks of life, mm-hmm. all over the country, mm-hmm. you know, very, very rural communities, of you know, like no traffic light uh, and uh, all the way up. Um, you know, to to the the big cities, the vast majority of the people I met were good, open-minded, cooperative, friendly for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I I would, I show up in so many towns that you know just like just me and my team in the rental car and just like pop out and and speak at the cafe or the home or the union hall uh, and. It was great. Like there were so many wonderful people and even people that maybe disagreed with me uh, were mm-hmm. very happy to hear me out and would say like, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that like that, that, that sense that human beings are uh, generally open and caring and 
co- communal um, mm-hmm. was born out by my time on the trail. Yeah. Like uh, that, that, that's one of the major feelings I've had over the last number of months and years. You probably had the same set of experiences because you've traveled the world, whereas I've -hmm. I've been all over the United States, but I have to say I have not left the country Mm -hmm. in quite some time because (laughs) I've been campaigning (laughs) here. Yeah. Well, if you want to lose your prejudices, travel is a a great medicine. Uh, It's relatively easy to hate or dislike people who are far away, you know, that you just see their Twitter profile and then they're like these abstract... People, you know, the immigrant far away or the Democrat or the Republican, blah, blah, blah. It's really difficult to actually hate someone who's standing in front of you because human beings have evolved for face-to-face contact, right? We have the most expressive faces in the whole animal kingdom. Uh, we have the unique ability to blush. You know, no other primate does that. We, we do it. You know, we involuntarily give away our feelings, um, which is, uh, I mean, I think that's fascinating that that has been an evolutionary advantage for us. Uh, I think it's the reason is that it helps to establish trust. And um, we also have very unique eyes, right? Um, if you compare our eyes with like all the other primate species, and there are like 200 primate species in total, we are the only ones that have white around our eyes. So I can see you looking at me right now. Uh, and it's just easier to follow our gazes, uh, you know, while with uh, chimpanzees or bonobos, that's that's much, much harder to see what they're actually looking at. I never but, did trust those bonobos. <laughs> well, actually, bonobos are relatively friendly. Did you know that? Bonobos are like these, uh, they're sort of like, they're not xenophobic, but they're xenio, how do you say that? Philia is they just love strangers. What often happens if you have like two groups of bonobos and they meet each other for the first time is that they have an orgy you know they <laughs> this is, that's, a, that's sort of their, that their way of bonobos. saying hi <laughs> now i'm not saying we have to do that but there's actually quite a lot of things we can learn from the bonobos so so we're we we're evolved to trust each other um, yeah, so that we yeah. can see where we're looking we can see how our faces yeah uh, express uh, emotion yeah um, and that's why it's important to be on the trail right to actually go out and meet other people just to remember that, you know, what we see of each other on Twitter and Facebook or on the news, that's not reality. And, um, you know, this is this is the problem. I think that those at the top, you know, the cynical rulers in power, right, who want to uh, keep the way, uh, you know, keep things the way they are right now, they want you to watch as much CNN as possible. They want you to watch as much Fox News as possible. Because they know that, you know, if you follow a lot of the news, then you are going to be more cynical and more scared. And it's simply easier to rule people who are scared. And it's it's more difficult to rule people who have a more trusting attitude to life. Because they're like, well, maybe we can just do things on our own, right? Maybe we can live in a genuine democracy where, you know, average citizens just get to have a say as well. Um, so maybe throughout we history, can give everyone $2,000 a month and that would be A-OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's a dangerous idea. I, I think that those at the top have often been afraid of the of the idea of freedom for everyone, because they're worried that they won't be necessary anymore. I agree with you. I, I think that uh, we do have a set of institutions in place that don't trust people, um, and that that's fed into our leaders and our media, and mm-hmm. our policy. Uh, to, to me, running on universal basic income, I, it strikes me as so obvious. I was like, we should totally do this. Mm-hmm. By the way, if we don't do this, we're fucked. But we should totally do this for like a, a multitude of 
very beautiful human reasons. Mm. Uh, and uh, the fact that so many folks who are in positions of power just uh, resisted it so mightily for a mm -hmm. variety of reasons. It's like, why are you resisting this? Like, what's wrong with giving mm -hmm. everyone money? We should have done yeah. this decades ago. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that yeah. there's like a, that there's a strange tension or disconnect between mm -hmm. trusting people uh, and how we're organizing our mm -hmm. society right now. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What do you think about the danger of the corruption of power? You know, because this is one of the findings that I came back to again and again during my research is that power is like this drug where, you know, you put people who are powerful in a brain scanner and they're the regions that are involved with empathy. They don't really work that well anymore. They've got uh, powerful brain damage. people don't blush anymore. Um, I mean, I think the idea of like Boris Johnson or Bolsonaro or Trump blushing, I mean, we've, I think we find that hard to imagine. Um, so power is this very dangerous thing. And, and nomadic hunter-gatherers already knew this. So they had this strong culture where, where humbleness was really important, right? Where you sort of, yeah, made jokes about yourself and you were not sort of allowed by the group to boast and say, oh, I'm so great and blah, 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 because they knew that power was a dangerous thing. Uh, but now we've ended up in this society where it's not survival of the friendliest anymore, but it often seems to be survival of the shameless. And um, yeah, I guess this is the problem that we run into again and again as, as a society, is that we um, just find it hard to control those in power and to make sure that they stay humble. It's a real problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I saw your uh, research into how power reduces empathy and changes uh, the way your brain is wired. Mm -hmm. And it's consistent with my experiences, frankly, interacting with tons of very, very powerful people. Mm. Like the best of the powerful people um, still have a degree of humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do think that there's some overlap with uh, being a woman uh, or with being mm. a part of a group that frankly, um, like doesn't see itself as powerful, mm. uh, you know, uh, with every... Mm. Um, type of interaction mm -hmm. where they get reminded of what it's like to be on the other side mm. um, more often than mm. if you were like a, you know, a, a powerful uh, man uh, mm -hmm. or a powerful white man, depending upon mm -hmm. the context. Um, but, but I think that the brain damage is real. Mm. Uh, and I, I've been trying to figure out how to combat it. 
you know, one thing I'm for is term limits because I think, well, if you're going to get brain damaged by power, let's just have you in there. You can do a few things and then we get you out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll someone exactly. else said yeah. who, who hasn't really been that screwed up yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, or, or maybe there are some kind of exercises uh, mm -hmm. that we have our leaders do that try to keep them human. Mm -hmm. um, but and, and I, I've experienced a very watered down version of this record because I'm obviously like, you know, it's like um, I'm in my um, home just like many other people. Um, but but even for me, I saw my um, my attitudes and, and behavior getting pushed in a particular direction mm -hmm. um, as the campaign grew. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of like the most basic things was that, you know, I've run companies and it was always very important to me to know who was at my company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like I wanted to interview anyone we hired, like, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in, in the, this candidate mode, um, I'd be running for office and then I'd show up in an event and there'd be like people on my, my team that I'd never met. And, and there were a number of reasons for that because that was just like the practicality is like, look, like, you know, you're doing all this stuff and like, we had to like hire people mm -hmm. and like, I got it. Um, and, and so then there was like this sense of, um, like it changes like your interactions with people in some, some respects. Like, I, I don't think I ever really um like got the brain damage that power <laughs> gives yeah. um yeah. but i can very very clearly see how it would happen yeah um i recognize you, that you wind i absolutely up. recognize that uh and you just have to notice it happening within yourself and i think you have to surround yourself with people who are not you know too impressed with what you do and that you just remember that you know, you're a product of circumstances and of the great work of so many other people, right? So writing a book, for example, it's basic. I can only do it because there's so many brilliant specialists, you know, anthropologists, sociologists, philosophers, economists, etc., doing them brilliant work. So now I can make a synthesis of it. But I can't do it without so many of my colleagues and my editors and my correctors, etc., etc. So it's really a group effort. Um, but it's something that you need to remind yourself of. And I think it's also important to have a yeah, have a sort of a culture. Uh, there's a, there's a little bit of a difference here, I think, between the Netherlands here and the United States, um, where in in the Netherlands we often see success as a crime, right? <laughs> Is that there's this a, a bit more of a stronger egalitarian culture? We tend to be distrustful of successful people, uh, and that has its downsides as well. I think it's uh, it might be one of the reasons why we have fewer like really globally successful companies. I don't know. Someone should do a PhD on that. Uh, but it has real benefits as well uh, because you tend to have politicians who, I don't know, who are maybe a little bit humbler. Uh, in America, it's a problem for sure. Um, and I'm very interested in systemic ways to address this problem because I think mm. it's really important. Mm. Um, yeah, I like th there should be policies around it uh, because having the wrong leader who's sort of losing their humanity like mm -hmm. in positions uh, of power um is is terrible yeah um you, we're seeing that a bit with these uh protests too where you can sense that there are some uh local authority figures who aren't terribly empathetic anymore yeah um or to the extent they're expressing an emotion it's like like why are you uh persecuting me and mine like you know why why do you why are you demonizing like my department or, yeah. or whatnot or, or whatever yeah. it is like you know it's like that they, they're not seeing the fact that folks are suffering um in their community or around them yeah. um or that there are legitimate issues and grievances so so there there are or crimes yeah. so there are 
because th this to me is a very uh, important issue, Rucker, is like how the heck do we uh, try and reverse the transformation that power uh, exerts on people? Yeah. Have you looked in this whole idea uh, of participatory democracy? Because I think that's very much connected to UBI. Um, I actually, uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that, as I said, you know, I, I started to realize that I needed to dig a little bit deeper and, you know, ask the more fundamental question of what are human beings really like. But, uh, you know, a, a friend and colleague of mine uh, is a Belgian philosopher, David van Rijbroek, and he had just written a, a book a couple of years ago called Against Elections where he says we need to move towards a real or genuine democracy where you don't just have the right to vote every, I don't know, three or four years, but you actually often become a politician yourself, right? You're just uh, randomly elected, for example, just like uh, the Greeks did. I mean, that was the original Greek uh, philosophy of, of what a real democracy should look like. They sometimes call it deliberative democracy. And uh, so he had written this book with a huge amount of examples and, and, and uh, experiments that have been done, uh, you know, again, ever since the 1970s that actually show that this works, right? So you bring together people around a table, whether they're left wing or right wing, rich, poor, young, old, you let them have a discussion about really controversial subjects, you know, whether it's you know, drug policy, taxes, abortion, you name it. And often they come up with sensible compromises. It's really pretty amazing if you, you give them access to experts as well. Uh, and it really works. Um, and I think sort of this uh, vision of democracy is also, um, it also uh, relies on a different view of human nature, right? So it's, it's very much uh, the same as with, with UBI. I think you can get there once you start looking at other people in a different way. If you see them as these lazy, disengaged people who are not interested in politics and only care about their, I don't know, their, their Netflix and their Amazon Prime account, and, you know, the, and they're just... A, I'm, wanna, I'm a big believer yeah. in the wisdom of crowds and the wisdom of people. Uh -huh. And to me, we certainly can't do that much worse than the decisions that are being made by like the detached elites who mm. are um, frankly, like, you know, like running us into the ground, at least, you know, uh, like on many of the biggest issues of our day. So I'm a huge fan of that reimagining of democracy and uh, em empowering people to make yeah. Uh, decisions that would work for them in their communities. I think universal basic income is hand in hand in this. It's like, we're going to make you yeah. a genuine stakeholder uh, yeah. in our country. Uh, we're going to invest in you and your children. And then you should be able to determine where our resources are going in a significant way. Mm -hmm. um, because who's going to make a better decision, you or some asshole like, you know, hundreds <laughs> or th th yeah. thousands of miles away. Exactly. Um, exactly. Who, who's, who's then going to end up um, you know, like feeding resources into a pipe and then the pipe's going to be like, I don't trust you. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, prove to yeah, me that, yeah. that, that, that prove to me that yeah. you deserve this or. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, so I'm a big believer in that vision. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's good to hear. I, I mean, in general, I've become a, become a bit more skeptical of, of experts, right? Even though sometimes people announce me as, oh, he's an expert on this or an expert on that. But you know, the real experts on people's lives are people themselves. And we now have created this whole, what we call the knowledge economy, where people have a lot of knowledge and they try to make simple things more complex so that then we need them, right? All these bureaucrats and managers to manage all this complexity. 
But then maybe you should just just go back to school and think about, you know, do we actually need all that complexity, right? Uh, think about healthcare, for example. We've made it so extraordinarily complex, right? Uh, just uh, the whole insurance system. Does it really have to be this way? Or can we just go back to a much more simple, simpler system that... You know, if I look at the Netherlands in the 1980s, it was much simpler, you know, it was just, yeah, you just try to help someone who's in a difficult situation. Do we need a huge amount of innovation there? Do we need a huge amount of new apps there and new management philosophies and blah, blah, blah? Or do we actually need to go back to basics and be a little bit more skeptical of all those experts who give TED Talks, right? Uh, and say, well, I found the new big thing. It's like that 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 Dutch entrepreneur that you cite. Um, to mm -hmm. to make it simple is difficult, and to make it difficult uh, is is simple. Or make it. Yeah. I screwed that up. Go ahead, <laughs> do it right. The way around. <laughs> yeah. To make it difficult is simple. Yeah, but to make it simple is difficult. Um, yes. That's it. That's his philosophy. And indeed, he built this quite big health healthcare organization with self-directed teams of nurses. Now he's fifteen thousand employees. It's called Buurtzorg. Which is, translates as neighborhood care, and um, yeah, they deliver healthcare at a cheaper cost, higher quality, higher salaries for the employees. It's like win, 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 win. It's it's like way better than all the competition. And uh, again, it shows you that sort of this whole debate about capitalism versus socialism is a little bit nonsense because here you have this organization that is obviously funded with taxes, but then you know is is um, you know, really decentralized, and people just have the freedom to. Uh, do their job in the best way possible. I think that there's a really uh, a marriage possible here between uh, two different visions. Yeah, I mean, to me, the spectrum really needs to be either uh, human or inhuman. Mm. And our goal is to humanize uh, our economy and our planet as, as fast as possible. And you are a massive leader and champion of humanity, Rutger. Mm. There are millions of people that look to you for edification and, and inspiration, and I'm one of them. Hmm. And I just want to thank you so much for Thanks, the incredible man. work you do. Um, it is true. I'm with you. It's like my goal is to try and um, make some progress and then get the hell out of the way. You know what hmm. I mean? Like, like it's not like, oh, I want to be crouching, like, like making all the decisions. It's like I want to help you make your decisions for yourself. Hmm. Um, and, and that's a vision that we have to make real as quickly as possible. I totally agree. You should come over one time here in the Netherlands. You know, we need you here as I well. I would love that. And... <laughs> And congratulations, Rutger, on his awesome new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. Uh, his last book was a bestseller. I'm sure this one will be too. You should definitely check it out. Um, it will uplift you. It makes you more optimistic about uh, what's possible and about human nature. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really, really enjoyed this. Me too. Yeah, I'll come out of the Netherlands. We'll do it again. We'll do this again anytime, <laughs> man. You can be like... A freaking regular. You don't even need to have, uh, you know, written a book that you want to talk about. We can just talk. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. Let, let's. Because I know you're time. always learning. You're you're always finding out new stuff, and you're one of the world's foremost champions of universal basic income. Uh, you know, we have to to get this done. Mm -hmm.